We'll be looking at our gospel reading this morning. A very uh, fruitful passage indeed, lots to be said there. <laughs> Believe it or not, one of the things that came to my mind when I was reading here is a, is a, a scene from Shrek, of all things. Um, my daughter was, uh, uh, was in a theater production of Shrek, so I guess I have lived that scene many times. But there's this great scene where, if you've seen the movie before, uh, Donkey and Shrek are about to cross this bridge, a rickety wooden bridge over boiling lava. And uh, Shrek uh, is, uh, it gives uh, Donkey one word of advice, just don't look down. And about three seconds over the bridge, he says, I'm looking down, Shrek, I'm looking down. <laughs> Um, I feel a lot like Donkey. I think that's the whole purpose of Donkey in the film is that he kind of says what uh, most of us are thinking. Um, so often this is kind of the tension that we feel. I was thinking about that because of Jesus' words. Put your hand to the plow. Don't look back. I'm looking back, Lord. <laughs> I'm looking back. The field, of course, is a metaphor for our lives and the plow, a metaphor for the work that we're called to do as disciples. And like Donkey discovers, what makes all the difference really is who's on the bridge with us or whose hand is on the plow with us as we do our work. The pathway of discipleship exposes us to the lava, <laughs> which is kind of our own inner world, our motives, our faults, our errors, our sins. And the appearance of Jesus will often stir all these things up. Um, it's kind of a, an, uh, what's the right word, and not an irony, but a, a, a kind of an interesting wrinkle of Jesus. You know, we, we think of him as being the one who brings peace and calm, and he does. But he is also the one stirring up the pot. And um, we're going to see that aspect of Jesus here in spades. Um, without him, we are without hope. But with him, all things are possible. With him, we're free from the control of of that past in the wrong way, the control of sin and brokenness so that we can live with purpose and hope and meaning. That's the offer before us. It's a meaningful life, a purposeful life, not a, a toxic life. The context here in uh, chapter nine of Luke is important. They've just come off the Mount of Transfiguration. And notably, the three of them, uh, three of the disciples were on that mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured. There were Peter, James, and John. We'll make note of that in just a minute. And of course, standing next to Jesus, if you know the, the story, uh, um, are Elijah and Moses. Elijah also kind of figures prominently here in the uh, unfolding account we're to read. And of course, there's the voice of God. Um, the impact of the Mount of Transfiguration is interesting, and we won't uh, go deeply into that, but you can, you can look back a couple of pages. But you'll see that after they come off the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus foretells his death. Kind of a, a dissonant note after such glory, and the disciples are not happy about that. In fact, they're afraid. And the question of motivation comes to the fore. Why are we doing what we're doing? And things don't go very well for the disciples. They end up arguing about who's greatest and other kinds of other shameful things. And so you can see, even after the disclosure of Jesus and his glory, there's disorientation in the disciples. And there, there's the revelation of all of these kinds of false motives. Who's greatest? Who are my people? You belong and you don't. There's another account in there of, hey, there's somebody doing things in your name. Tell them to stop. So this question about who am I and who are my people 
Well, this kind of moves forward into our reading this morning where Jesus, his focus stirs up people around him, exposing their motives and creating dissonance, uh, but also creating opportunities for discovery. And I think it's good for us to kind of just let this dynamic happen to us. This isn't about right and wrong. It's about discovery. It's about listening and paying attention. So we move forward and we'll find, first of all, that it says here that Jesus, uh, the days drew near for him to be taken up. This is an allusion to Elijah, a very interesting expression. Taken up is kind of a full term for describing Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection and ascension. If you're familiar with the story of Elijah, and we won't go into great detail there, but if you're familiar with it, Elijah's famous for, among other things, being taken up to heaven in a, or somewhere into the glory of God in a chariot. Um, quite a vivid scene in the Old Testament, quite shocking and arresting to those around him. Uh, who knows what Elijah was thinking? Um, but uh, we're going to find the character of Elijah and his story kind of setting a tone here. And, uh, and so Elijah was with Jesus on, on the Mount of Transfiguration just days before. Now he kind of sets a, a, a type for Jesus' own going up. And the days are drawing near. An important point uh, for Luke here, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is kind of like a, a big moment in, in Luke's telling of the gospel, the before and after. So now things start to change. He, sp he spends a lot of time in his Galilean ministry in the north. Now he sets his face to go south to Jerusalem. And now we're on a journey of a different nature. The, the, uh, the, the tension increases. The focus sharpens. The teaching becomes urgent. And, uh, and Jesus' face is set. You see here in the parallel to Elijah that this is now going to be a sign of transition. It's a sign of movement from one dimension to another, the handing on of the mission to other people, expansion of the mission, development of the mission. Transitions are hard. Anyone who's raised children knows that you know, you know, it, things go crazy when there's a transition. All of a sudden, the kid gets cranky. Uh, they want to do things their body isn't quite ready to do yet. The teeth is growing in. doesn't feel good. Um, we know that as adults, too. When things start to change, some of it's exciting and some of it's very uncomfortable. And you're going to see that taking place here as Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. Jesus, of course, sees more than anyone around him. Jesus has a full and complete view of what's going on. And this is a really interesting feature of Jesus that you could think almost, and there's been a temptation in Christian history to elevate Jesus as something a little bit more than human. That, that somehow his inner world sets him apart from everybody else and he kind of floats along as kind of this divine person. But remember what our creed tells us is that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. He's not less human because he's divine. He's fully human and fully divine. And we're going to see that as an important point here, that Jesus is fully human, and at the same time, his vision is clear. He's always seeing the present in the light 
of the complete and total future. So he can see farther. He can see more. He can see bigger. By extension, Jesus sees this, us this way too. And I think it's important to realize that when Jesus is with people, he's seeing them as f in their fullness, the beginning and the end. He sees us now, but as a total and complete picture, which includes our eternal life. This kind of blows my mind, but Jesus knows us from the very first moment of us, but he sees us always as a complete picture, which includes our life eternal. There's not any possible way we can see ourselves this way. It's important to understand that, that we have a partial view of our own life. There's no way we can possibly know ourselves independently of knowing Jesus. And so Jesus sets his face. He is fully human. Uh, there's a uh, passage in uh, the Reformed theologian John Calvin's commentary that is so well-suited for the point I want to make. I just want to read it at some length. Uh, John Calvin, very impressed with the love of Jesus in his fully human form relative to this passage about having set his face. Here's what Calvin says. Christ, when he had death before his eyes, rose above the fear of it and went forward to meet it. But at the same time, he had a struggle. This is, you know, a good Orthodox theologian. Jesus had fear. Jesus had struggle. And that having vanquished terror, he boldly presented himself to die. For if no dread, no difficulty, no struggle, no anxiety had been present to his mind, what need was there that he should set his face steadfastly? Did you ever think about Jesus in that framework? No dread, no difficulty, no struggle, no anxiety in Jesus? But as Jesus was neither devoid of feeling, he must have been affected by the cruel and bitter death, or rather the shocking and dreadful agony, agony which he knew would overtake him for the rigorous judgment of God. And so far is this from obscuring or diminishing his glory. In other words, oh, what kind of a Lord is it that would feel fear? Calvin says, it's remarkable proof of his unbounded love for us for laying aside a regard to himself that he might devote himself to our salvation through the midst of terrors, he hastened to his death, the time of which he knew to be at hand. There's a lot in that statement about Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem. It makes him more like us, not less. Jesus knows what it's like to go through the midst of terrors to feel fear, to have anxiety, and to triumph. Jesus is fully human with fully human emotions. He understands us. He understands that we are complex people. We have emotions. We have memories. We have agendas. We have reasons for moving towards and away from Jesus. We find ourselves with him, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves apart from him. We see through a glass darkly, partially, incompletely, and we experience the disorientation of that half picture. 
about who is my neighbor? What are my intentions? Do I like the outcomes? Do I like what I see in others or in myself? This is important because it ties to the end of the passage, which I'll get to later on, putting our hand to the plow and not looking back. It does not mean that we have overcome the dissonance or the tension or the struggle, but rather that we have the capacity and the courage to move forward in the face of all of that mess. So Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and he's gonna take people with him, sometimes kicking and screaming. And the first place he goes is he draws near to the Samaritans. He didn't have to do that. Um, he could have avoided the Samaritans, which uh, the Samaritans, many people would have wanted to avoid if they were Jewish. You remember that the Samaritans are kind of half Jewish. Um, the Samaritans were created after the second exile of Israel, the Assyrians, as they would often do, kind of brought their own people in, but kept some of the, the poor people there and they would intermarry and it was a way of the Assyrians kind of uh, expressing their rule. Um, the Samaritans therefore were of Jewish extraction and had Jewish history, but they had developed their own kind of pathway forward and they did not view Jerusalem as the holy city, they viewed Mount Gerizim, their mountain, as the holy city. And so there was not real, there was really strong discord between the Samaritans and the Jewish people, and many Jewish people would not want to be in Samaria, and so Jesus could have avoided it, but he doesn't. Jesus is redefining who are my people. Of course, the uh, Samaritans are not happy with Jesus either. Um, they can see that Jesus' face is not sent, set towards Mount Gerizim, their mountain, it's set towards Jerusalem. Jesus is Jewish, and he's not compromising. And, uh, and the Samaritans say, thank you very much, but you can leave now. Uh, they're not aligned with the movement of Jesus. Jesus' move towards Jerusalem, of course, isn't just picking and choosing the best place. It's an expression of covenant faithfulness for the salvation of the world. And the Samaritans, like everybody else, can only see their little thing and they can't see what Jesus is doing. And when they see him moving in that direction, it's not their direction. And they're saying, oh, we're not moving with you. Please move along. Of course, that's not the end of the story for the Samaritans. You'll find them uh, becoming followers of Jesus later on in the book of Acts. And of course, the Samaritans figure in many other places in Jesus' teaching. But here, they're saying, uh, no, thank you. The disciples, of course, are complicit in this whole uh, problem, uh, they misapply the Elijah narrative. They're like, ooh, we like Elijah. He calls down fire on people he doesn't like. And uh, we can tap into that. That's a movement we can get behind. And uh, Jesus says, yeah, that's not it either. <laughs> and he rebukes them. I wonder what he s said, kind of. <laughs> How does Jesus rebuke somebody when like that? Um, does he breathe a long sigh, shake his head. Um, uh, they were rebuked, however. And um, they, at this point, don't understand yet the, the thing that Jesus is doing, the place that he's going. They don't see what he sees. They can't hear what he's saying yet. Their, their ears are just overwhelmed 
Jesus says just a couple passages before, I'm going to die. And like, I, I don't even know what you're saying. I, I, I can't accept that in my worldview. Now he goes to the Samaritans and he doesn't punish them. They're like, I don't know what he's doing. And you're going to see this kind of rolling forward into the next section uh, um, of our passage. But it can be the case and I think many of us would acknowledge that it sometimes is the case that the face of Jesus is unpalatable to us. When Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, it didn't look nice to other people. And it's not because it wasn't nice. There's no different face. It's just that that point, the face of Jesus represented something that wasn't striking root in the hearts of the people around him. Jesus' face was unpalatable, and it is always unpalatable when we're entrenched in our perspective or our tribe, when we don't like what he's doing. Remember Jonah? God said, go to your enemy and tell them if they repent, I'll save them. And Jonah says, I hate that. I don't want them to repent and be saved. I want them to be destroyed. Why can't I have that job? God was not palatable to Jonah. And there's just so many indications. And I think there are times in our own life where we look at the face of Jesus and it does not look good. I just want to acknowledge that. We're not trying to solve that yet. So the intervention of Jesus into our lives may touch on places in our lives that are not yet reconciled to the gospel. And this is not to say that those of us who are believers in him that we're not believers it's just to acknowledge that in this life our belief is fickle and that our belief has not penetrated into all of the areas of our lives where, we're, where we stubbornly refuse to let go of the anger or the enemy that we like to have there or the agenda or the gripe. And there's a certain part of us that wants that, to indulge and self-justify and keep the status quo and when we encounter the face of Jesus there, it's dissonant, it's uncomfortable, it's frankly unwanted. We can't figure all this out on our own, by the way. Just, there's no way we can solve the dilemma of our own life. There are enemies and there are righteous causes, but there is also a righteousness that we can't know apart from his righteousness. We don't bring a righteousness of our own. It requires the righteousness of our Savior, who knows how to move into these spaces well. And Jesus is so brilliant at acknowledging and allowing for the displeasure that people feel in him not to derail his love for them. That's one of the amazing things about the cross, that Jesus is around people who did not want to be with him. And yet, his love was able to overcome that kind of resistance. That's why we trust him with our lives. So, we find examples of this going forward in, into three requests or kind of three encounters and three responses here in the remainder of our passage. So, one guy kind of rushes up to him and says, I will follow you wherever you go. I'll bet Peter would have liked this guy, right? Because Peter does the same thing. 
Peter's like, oh, that's a guy I want on my team. Peter probably was already probably going to say something. <laughs> you know, um, but before he does, Jesus comes out with this discouraging thing. Like, come on, man, I was going to choose him for the team. You know, and Jesus doesn't say, oh, you are awesome. Look at you. He says, he gives this kind of idiom, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, that's a kind of a downer. Um, it's interesting because uh, this guy seems to be the antitype of the guy that comes after him. That guy wants to say, I, I, just a second. And Jesus doesn't say, ah, exactly right. See, this guy is not rushing into them. Neither of them win. Um, they're both challenged. Jesus is not handing out a recipe, right? Or he's not answering all the questions. That's why we can't just simply straightforwardly apply this. Jesus isn't doing that kind of thing. He leaves many questions lingering in the air. And now we've all encountered animals before as an analogy. We know that Jesus, not too long ago, just provided, said, hey, look at the birds, look at the lilies. You know, they don't toil, they don't work. God provides for them. I like that kind of animal story. <laughs> I like it when Jesus says, hey, I'll take care of you. That's a good animal story. Here's a different animal story. Now we're looking at the birds, and they're like, yeah, they got it easy. I'm not like those birds. I don't have a nest. I'm like, Jesus. But here in this case, that's the contrast. The birds and the foxes, they're settled into their homes. Jesus is not. He, he's not unaffected. Again, this is the human quality of Jesus. He's not unaffected by the impact of his mission on his lifestyle. He's not dumb. He's not saying, man, I, he's not like a, you know, a hippie or something, saying, I like camping. He, he's not foolish or sentimental or kind of groovy or whatever. You know, he's a real man with real aspirations, and he's saying, this is hard. It may be a subtle reminder, too, um, of the predicament of the Son of Man. He uses the Son of Man phrase, similar to the words Jesus spoke a few days earlier when he foretold his death. He said, hey, the Son of Man's going to die. You know, this isn't easy. This isn't a road trip. I'm a human. Well, in Matthew's gospel, uh, he calls this man uh, a scribe. Uh, who knows? Maybe Jesus was contrasting the nature of the work. Um, scribes maybe, you know, didn't have enough dirt under the fingernails. I don't know. Um, but in any case, Jesus appears to say, I don't think that you know what you're asking for yet. And again, this is very similar to Peter. Peter said, I will go to death for you. And Jesus said, yeah, you know, you're going to betray me, Peter. It's part of your story. And yet Peter, you know, the first of the apostles. So again, questions lingering in the air. Now the next guy uh, has courage. He comes forward. Well, actually, he doesn't have courage. Jesus actually points out this guy. I don't know if he wanted to be pointed out or not. But Jesus, in this case, reaches out. He calls the person. He seems to catch him off guard. He says, follow me. And the guy says, well, I, okay, but first I've got to take care of some business, some family business. I'd like to bury my father. 
could go both, there's different ways of interpreting that, by the way, um, and I know this only from reading commentaries on it, so it's not like I, you know, kind of end that school, but apparently, uh, this could be referring to an actual burial of a father who had just recently passed away, or it could be that it was referring to the collection of the bones a year later into an ossuary. So there would be the gathering of the bones after the body had laid in the tomb for a year, and it could have been that which is what this man was uh, referencing. That's why the, the, uh, the allusion to let the dead bury their own dead. It's a little cryptic, but regardless of what all is the context there, Jesus is saying this responsibility you have by instruction of Torah to take care of your family is now not applicable in this case. Jesus, of course, is not averse to using hyperbole with, uh, with the intent of making a point. Remember, at one other place, Jesus says that you're to hate your father and your mother. Well, of course, Jesus doesn't hate his father or his mother. He's using hyperbole to say that in light of the gospel, all relationships are reoriented, not dismissed, just reframed. Because Jesus does take care of his family. It's interesting when he says, let the dead bury their own dead. When was it that Jesus was taking care of Mary? It was on the cross at the moment of his own death. He says to John, behold your mother. And to Mary, he says, behold your son. Jesus at the moment of his death is taking care of his family. The living dying, taking care of his family. So the call uh, is issued though to this man a second time after he kind of challenges him here. He says, I want you to go and proclaim the kingdom. Now he's commissioned. A lot happens in this little exchange. He calls him, he challenges him, and then he recommissions him to go and spread the gospel of life, now in contrast to the gospel of death that seemed to be at work. This is a call to re-engage differently. So yes, this man is going to go back. He's going to go back home. And Jesus doesn't say, don't go back home. He says, go back home differently. Go back home under the auspices and authority of the kingdom of heaven, where there's life and growth and resurrection power. <clears throat> I wonder what Jesus saw in that particular man to say that. He didn't say that to the first man. He says it to the second man. Specific, concrete, particular. Um, a similar in, uh, kind of comment uh, in the third encounter, this man offers himself, says very similarly, I will follow you, Lord, like the first man, but let me say farewell to those at my home. I'm just gonna make, make it quick. Um, what is home here? Well, it's location, connection, familiarity, allegiances. He wants to attend to that, to that his home. It's also a timing issue. It's a sense of indication of what his priority is. And Jesus says, the time is now, the agenda is different, the focus is elsewhere. So no, whoever puts their hand to the plow has to look forward. Interestingly, in these three responses, we don't know, or in these three uh, occurrences rather, we don't know how any of them responded. 
it rhetorically, this leaves the possibilities very open. How do they respond? How do we respond? Is Jesus asking for a simple answer? Okay, I won't go bury my dad. Okay, I won't go home and say goodbye. And Jesus said, okay, that's more like it. No, of course not. Jesus isn't just saying comply with... He's, he's raising up in these particular people the tension of their own world and the contrast to his in a way that allows him to say, please come forward with me. Remember what Paul says, if we don't have love, none of this really matters, the rightness of the answer. But Jesus, of course, is not saying none of this matters. Jesus is not saying your dad doesn't matter, your home doesn't matter, your lifestyle doesn't matter. He's not intending to say any of those things because he's acknowledging that they matter. Jesus' lifestyle matters. Jesus' mom matters. Jesus' home matters. Jesus' labor matters. Jesus' body matters. All of those things matter. So Jesus wasn't intending to say to these people, look, none of those things matter. Christians have gotten confused about that over time. They must think, oh, Jesus must be asking us to live an aesthetical lifestyle that doesn't have any of those things. No. We're not simply to figure this out on our own. Jesus isn't handing out principles to follow or recipes to assemble. He's not asking for the right answer. Very few people in the Gospels got it right. And his closest followers seldom did. These are not things we figure out. These are things that have to be discovered together with him and his people. The three interactions are open-ended. Each of us is meant to carry this dialogue forward. And he's inviting us into something. First of all, just an acknowledgement that he's addressing us. He didn't answer the three people in the same way. Each one had their own answer an acknowledgement that he's addressing us particularly. It's an acknowledgement that we have to pause to listen and to see. What is Jesus saying? What is he showing? And then it's an openness to let the word find its way into us and expose what needs to be exposed, to call out what needs to be called out, and hear the compassionate invitation to engage in the most meaningful and purposeful life. You can note the shift back and forth between what's in the background and what's in the foreground. You, you know those, those kind of like black and white pictures where you see one thing and then when you, you look for a second you see another thing. You see, you see you know, candelabras and, or candle holders and all of a sudden you see profiles of faces. And, and your, your mind's going like this as foreground and and background kind of shift back and forth. This is kind of what it's like with the Holy Spirit. When we're addressed by the gospel, sometimes these things move in and out, never apart, but certainly in priority moving back and forth. The foreground, our occupation, our family, our home, these are important, but they are being modulated into a different mode, the mode of the kingdom. They're being integrated into a new narrative, a new story as we're grafted in. To the, to the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that will uh, consummate in a new world. We're placed into a, a larger frame of the kingdom. And, and the central place, the central factor is Jesus himself, a person 
What's behind in this metaphor is the old, the dark, the dead, the corrupt, the passing away, the transitional. What's ahead is fruitfulness, fruitfulness. And so I want to pause just as we come to closure here on this metaphor of the plow and the field, a metaphor of the kingdom and our place within it. It's where we're invited or almost enticed to put our hand on the plow, equipped with the implement, challenged to start the reality of a new situation, yet not alone. The kingdom of heaven has a king. That's what makes it a kingdom. And we are in this together. The field of the kingdom is our family, our work, our passion, our desire, our labor. All of that matters. That's the kingdom to you. It's your field. Now incorporated into the movement of God through Jesus Christ. So we're not just people. In general, we're sons. We're brothers and sisters. We're ambassadors. We're co-laborers. We're priests in our field. And so when we engage in the kingdom of heaven, it's Loving with our bodies, our hearts, and our minds. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. It includes all of our relationships, our families, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, people we're interceding for. It includes our things, our homes, our possessions, our finances. It includes ourselves, our talents, our interests, our desires. The field is already ours. The plow is already ours. It's there. It's, of course, not ours to earn, but to express, to bear witness, to create, to bear fruit. The kingdom of heaven is not our possession, but his, and yet our work belongs to us. But we're not alone and not without purpose. If we're not supposed to look back, then we're supposed to look forward. And what is it that we see? Well, Jesus, who is like us in this regard, saw something very beautiful. Hebrews 12 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the beginning and the end of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Jesus' work. And now his work is ours, and our work is his. He puts his hand on the plow, too. He's not distant, but near. He's our hope. Our hope, Paul says, is Christ in us, not just cheering us on from the stands. The glory of God is present to us in the face of Jesus Christ, the face that we talked about before that can seem unpalatable, but in fact, is our destiny, our purpose, the one who tells us who we are. Paul says this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. For we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I want to close with a, a brief story of a picture that I cherish of my mother. My mother is at the end of her, nearing the end of her Alzheimer's journey, I think. Um, and so I, I think about what there was in our past, and there's a picture that I love of her at our counter uh, when my daughter 
Talia was probably about four, and my son Michael about, or Nathan about one or two, four or five. Um, of course, my mom had the same uh, experience with Michael too, but this one picture is before Michael's born. And it's my mom, uh, she loved to bake, and on the counter was a, uh, was a, a mixer, you know, an automatic mixer in, in a bowl, uh, turning around, and there were pot, there were pans with cake powder and sugar and bowls and containers. And, uh, and, and Nathan was standing on a stool. Again, he probably was about two years old, maybe three. And, and, and he is so focused on that bowl and what's in that bowl and what's being mixed. It's, it's almost as if he was trying to climb in it. And, and, uh, and, and, and his, arm, his hand is wanting to go in it. And my mom is standing behind like this. So the kids are right here. My mom is standing behind. And she's just gently got... Nathan's wrist so it doesn't kind of, you know, kind of dive into the bowl. And Talia is there, you know, and, and she's the older one, slightly mothering, a little concerned about Nathan, but also focused on what's going on and being the helper. And, and my mom has got her arms around, she's got arm on Talia and a hand on Nathan and just sheer and utter joy on her face as she's in absolute loving control of all of the chaos, but not in such a way as taking over. She's not gripping Nathan. She's just guiding his hand. She's coaching him and Tali at the same time and integrating him into this wonderful process of making cake together. My mom is so happy. And my kids so focused and engaged and yet so aware of my mom's presence, so content to be right there in the midst of all the sugar and the flour and the, and the mixer and the bowl and the, and the mess. That's their labor. My mom knew Nathan's character, that he wanted to dive in and you could see the, the focus and intensity and, and my daughter doing it the right way and following the directions and, and being the helper. Their labor, their work. And my mom knew that because she was a baker herself and she knew all about it. God is inviting you to put your hand on the plow, an act of trust in affirming that Jesus is not at the periphery but at the center the center of you, of yourself, of your family, your job, your marriage, your parenting, your neighboring, your teaching, your recreation, your money, your plans. It's an act of trust that life is meant to have focus and purpose and meaning. It's meant to bear fruit, even in the tragedy of its impending death. We know we are not here forever. No good thing lasts in that framework. But in the framework of the kingdom and the resurrection life, all good things will be remade new. There will be no loss of all that matters most when you put your hand to the plow and look forward into the face of Jesus who sees you and your past and all that matters to you and its completion, there will be a Sabbath rest, a day when the labor is done and the fruit is born and the commendation is given. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is God's gift to you in Christ. In the meantime, 
Let's put our hand in his on the plow, not looking down, not looking back, but looking forward. Amen.